Well, good morning, everyone. We're live now on the Conversations That Matter podcast, and uh, it is a beautiful day where I am. I hope that you're enjoying the uh, the last of summer. I mean, it's kind of transitioning here in New York from summer to fall. It's just starting, but we still got 90 degrees on, on some of the days this week. So anyway, I'm looking forward to, to getting out and doing some summer things. Um, we have an important topic, though, to talk about today. And as many of you know, if you listen to this podcast for long enough, I do cover a lot of the social justice incursions that are made in evangelicalism. And we've covered various denominations, traditions, organizations that have been infiltrated. And um, I try to trace down how they've been infiltrated. Uh, what were the tactics that were used? What should our response be as Christians who are orthodox in our theology, who are conservative politically because we're conservative <clears throat> theologically? And I have the privilege today, uh, I don't know why I haven't had him on sooner, but uh, we have Dr. Everett Piper with us. Dr. Everett uh, Piper um, is a contributor to the Washington Times. He's written a few books. Uh, Not a Daycare is his most popular one. You can go to DrEverettPiper.com if you want to purchase those books or find out more about him. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Wesleyan tradition because that's uh, where Dr. Piper comes from. And he has been, uh, we'll say, at the in the upper echelons of uh, an institution in that tradition. So uh, thank you, Dr. Piper. Thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm honored to be on your show. Thanks for asking me. I think many of the people who are watching uh, my podcast or listening have probably seen or at least know about Enemies Within the Church. And you were featured in that documentary. Uh, and some of the things you said, I just was not familiar with. I think I come from more of a, a, a reformed fundamentalist-ish background and um, outside the Wesleyan tradition, though I, I actually do have some cousins who are Methodist ministers, but it just we, we didn't pay attention as much to what was happening. And some of the things you said, I thought were just startling. You, you talk about a grant in, in the documentary that you were offered for, I think it was a million dollars that you turned down because mm -hmm. of uh, it was tied to some, I guess, wokeness or social justice. So um, I want to get into some of that and trace down what's going on in the Wesleyan tradition. But before we do, I think for the viewer's sake, because I know I needed help with this initially, what is the Wesleyan tradition? Well, that's a that's a good question, because as president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, I was often asked, are you the same as Texas Wesleyan or Kansas Wesleyan or Illinois Wesleyan or Dakota Wesleyan? And the list went on. And the answer is no, um, except we would be cousins at the family reunion, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way. The quickest way for me to describe the Wesleyan tradition is to go back to John and Charles Wesley of the mid 1700s. Um, many of you, even if you're in a Reformed church, are singing Charles Wesley hymns frequently. Well, who were the Wesley brothers? John and Charles Wesley char challenged the Church of England because arguably they would have said the Church of England in the 1700s had its orthodoxy right, but it didn't have its orthopraxy. In other words, they weren't practicing what they preached. So the Wesley brothers rose up and said, you can't separate head from heart or belief from behavior. You can't separate public life from religious life. You have to be a unified, holistic Christian. You have to be a person of integrity. You should integrate all of your Christian life and your Christian beliefs into one Christian being. So the Wesley brothers started what was called the Methodist movement. Well, what was that at that time? It was the methods of holy living. They believe not, they, nobody in the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodist tradition, were arguing that you're saved by works, but they believed that, as Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. 
or as even Dietrich Bonhoeffer a couple centuries later said, only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe. So that there's this mandate, this call, as the epistle of James, that faith without works is dead. So it's by grace that you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. But part of the Christian life is a holiness life, a life of sanctification, becoming increasingly obedient unto the Lord. The Wesley brothers started the methods of holy living, the Methodist movement. It's interesting, in the first phase of that movement, that was a pejorative term that was put on them by their adversaries. It was kind of like uh, liberals calling you or me a fundamentalist today, as if that's a bad thing, believing in the fundamentals. You get my point? So yeah. the word was pejorative in the first place, but it really became almost an identifier of who they were in terms of you know, holiness unto the Lord. Um, but as you fast forward, as all denominations ultimately go, they lose their way. So by the Civil War, 100 years later, the Methodist movement was not taking a stand, at least in the United States, was not taking a stand for um, abolition of slavery or for um, allowing the poor in the church. So at the time, uh, many churches were charging for their pews. So if you paid a higher dollar uh, in terms of your tithe or you gave a major contribution to the, to the church, you could sit in the pew of your choice and therefore the poor were excluded from sitting in the church. And then of course, slavery, blacks weren't welcome. Well, the Methodists at the time weren't taking a stand against that in the United States. So out of that movement, the Methodist movement arose a more conservative movement that believed that the Bible was very clear that a black person is a human being and that the, the, poor, the poor should be able to sit in the church any place they want. The Nazarene church, the Free Methodist church and the Wesleyan church denominations sprung out of that movement of the Civil War. So we have this abolitionist uh, history in our DNA, but we were all biblical. We believed in the inerrancy of the scriptures um, and held tenaciously to that and believed that Christians should behave in the public square like Christians. Again, integrating your orthodoxy with your orthopraxy. So that, that's a rich and I would argue positive aspect of the Wesleyan tradition. But the irony, and I think what we're going to talk about today, is we're losing our way again. We're starting to slip, and we're starting to argue for more of an existential view, an experiential view, an emotional view of what Christianity should be in the public square, as opposed to the reason and the rationality and the clarity of Scripture, the inerrancy of the Word. So uh, Nazarenes, are, they would be Wesleyan, uh, Methodists or Wesleyan. Uh, what other, are there other major denominations that you would uh, tag as Wesleyan? Well, define major. Uh, there, you have some okay. smaller holiness denominations. The free Methodist denomination is not United Methodist. Now, the interesting thing here, John, is that many of us, myself included, kind of recoil when you start equating us with the contemporary United Methodist Church, because we all know what they're going through right, right now. Right, right. I understand. I would, raise my, I would raise my hand quickly as the former president of Oklahoma Westland and say, we're not Methodist. Right. Because we believe in the Bible. We are inerrantists. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We don't have gay and lesbian parades on our campus, and you're not going to find a rainbow flag on our homepage on our university website. So there's a difference between a Wesleyan and a Methodist, even though if you had a family reunion of all of the great-great-grandchildren of John and Charles Wesley, we'd be the conservative cousins in the tent, if you will. Understood. Nazarenes, Wesleyans, Free Methodists, Pilgrim Holiness, 
United Brethren in Christ, some of these denominations all would have common heritage. And we're actually, um, we overlap a little bit with the Assembly of God. So I was going to ask you a similar tradition. Yeah, I was going to ask if, if some of the Pentecostal uh, mm-hmm. traditions and the Assembly of God in particular would be considered that. So, um, so, so it is broad. And, and of course, you know, PCA members, Presbyterian Church in America members would not want to be uh, lopped in with the PCUSA people. Exactly. So I, I totally understand what you're talking about there. Um, all right. So uh, th- this tradition, as I think you've rightly described, was uh, initially with John and Charles Wesley, a move back towards personal piety, taking the Bible seriously, things that we would think overall would hedge against um, threats, I suppose, to orthodoxy, heterodoxy. Uh, and and what we see now is in all denominations, it's not just the Wesleyan tradition, is social justice is really challenging this political movement um, orthodox beliefs and, and in a subversive way and you sent me a long just just a lot of notes that you took on what kind of happened from your vantage point in the wesleyan tradition and and how uh, especially i would say more, some of the more aggressive stuff the lgbt stuff started coming in um so so i i am curious and i think everyone's probably curious to hear you talk about how did that fundamentally anti-biblical understanding get introduced and why was it at least somewhat accepted by some in and and where was it accepted was it the educational institutions was it in the churches themselves how did this come in well as an educator i'm always going to be quick to point out that what's caught excuse me that is what is taught in the classroom today is going to be practiced in your culture in your church in your courtrooms in your living room tomorrow so education matters I would argue, and I think I have the right and even the responsibility as an educator to say colleges and universities and seminaries are greatly to blame. When you start dumbing down the definition of scripture, when you start watering down your doctrinal statement, which the Wesleyan church, the Wesleyan denomination still declares in its discipline, in its official doctrinal statement that we are inerrantists. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture in all the original 66 documents, period. Okay, similar to what I assume you would say in terms of your view of scripture. Now, the interesting thing is a couple of the other holiness denominations, for example, the Nazarene church says that they believe in inerrancy, but then they qualify it in matters of salvation. Okay, now there's a huge difference between those two statements Mm. on inerrancy. And I think anybody can understand the huge difference therein. If you say you believe in inerrancy and then you qualify it, in matters of salvation, that leaves a lot of stuff in the Bible that you can say is culturally or socially relative for a given time and place, etc. And then you can start having these arguments for political and social justice that I would argue are outside the boundaries of biblical definition. So there's a difference between the inerrancy claim of one holiness denomination, the Wesleyan Church, and the inerrancy claim of another holiness denomination, the Nazarene Church. Even though we've had ongoing discussions, and I would argue they're even still taking place at this time, of merging as one church, one denomination. In fact, let me tell you this quick story. When I was on the board of uh, trustees for the Wesleyan Church International, I was on the board of about 30 board members. There was a robust conversation in one board meeting about five or six years ago 
about the potential of the Nazarenes and the Wesleyans merging into one holiness church, one denomination, because we are so close in our theological beliefs, our doctrinal beliefs. We all are uh, Methodist in heritage. We're holiness in tradition and in belief. We're biblically uh, faithful, we argue. But yet there are two definitions in those two denominations about scripture. So when we were having this debate on the floor in a board meeting for the Wesleyan Church, I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, if we merge, which definition of scripture are we going to use? There was silence. You could hear a pen drop. And then finally, a senior leader in the church who was a former general superintendent, which is the highest position you can hold within the Wesleyan Church, looked at me and said, we consider the difference to be be insignificant. I didn't even have to say anything. I just looked, raised my eyebrows a little bit and said, hmm, the difference is insignificant. Now, wow. at, when, we, when we stopped to have a break in that board meeting, I had several people come up to me and say, we did not even know that the two denominations had different statements on scripture, but we went and Googled it after you said that. and found Oh my goodness. True. So part of it is ignorance. People don't yeah. know. Even leaders of the church didn't know there were two different uh, descriptions, definitions of scripture, two definitions of inerrancy. There are hugely different because if you say the Bible is only inerrant when it comes to salvation through Jesus Christ alone, great, I agree with that statement that salvation is only through Jesus Christ alone, but what about all the other stuff you're gonna take off the table and say, well, that's social or that's cultural. Right. Uh, I would argue that's dangerous because now you've watered down the definition of Scripture to the point where you don't have to comply with a ton of stuff that you find in the Gospels, the Epistles, or even the Old Testament. Yeah, well, that that's amazing to me. I didn't actually know that. I, I know you're aware I did an episode, I don't know, a week ago on the Nazarenes and some of yes, the I compromises. And so I, I had no clue, though, that that was... I thought they had a more solid statement on inerrancy. Uh, I assume that, I suppose. And maybe a lot of the people in that board meeting assume that. Uh, are you bringing that up to... I mean, that that is an obvious weak point. Are, are you telling us, though, that the Nazarene Church was the first to adopt some of these LGBT-friendly ideas because of that? Well, I, think it, I don't think you can separate the two things. If your view of Scripture opens up the door for you to start talking about various different things with regard to the Christian life as being cultural and being social constructs rather than biblical mandates, then you're going to get there. You're going to end up at the place we are now with regard to the rainbow agenda, the LGBTQIA agenda, right. because you have, a, you have a ministry in the Nazarene church right now called LGBTQ Love Wins, all right? At the 2017 General Conference for the Nazarene Church, there was a rainbow-colored booth with that label on the booth promoting their ministry. Now, they wow. claim that they're not, they're not promoting a homosexual lifestyle, but what they do overtly say is that they believe inside B Christianity, that you can be a homosexual Christian. You can hyphenate your Christianity with your sexual preference, your sexual proclivities. Now, I would argue that's unbiblical. Where in the Bible does it tell you to hyphenate your Christianity, that you are a 
gay Christian, you're a bi Christian, you're a trans Christian. Where does it tell you in the Bible to hyphenate your Christianity by any of your proclivities or your inclinations to sin? That you're a lying Christian or that you're a gluttonous Christian or you're a greedy Christian. No, the Bible does not tell us to hyphenate our Christianity, our identity with our sins. It tells us to confess our sins and to repent of them, not to identify with them and make that part and parcel of who we are. Again, of all the denominations that should understand what I'm saying right now, it should be the holiness denominations, which have always stood for practicing what you claim to believe, for unifying head and heart, fact and faith, belief and behavior into a sanctified life of holiness unto the Lord. You do not hyphenate your Christian identity with your inclinations, your habits, your appetites, or your libido. Your holiness is unto the Lord, not to your libido. Am I, yeah. am I, is that clear? Absolutely. Absolutely. And amen. And, and that was in 2017, you said, I think. And um, that so, so we're talking now, this is three years before 2020. This is uh, when I would argue it probably didn't have to do this, right? Maybe there's more pressure now. There was pressure then. But uh, I mean, we, we gay marriage, quote unquote, uh, hadn't even been approved by the Supreme Court until what, two years before this. So, you know, th this is kind of early in my mind. Um, and and so I, I didn't know this, that this makes sense of the direction though the Nazarene church has been going. Was was this kind of out of nowhere? Was there opposition to it? Was, I mean, did it create a stir? Or was it just kind of ho-hum? There's a booth. Well, I had a, see, I'm not, again, people need to understand I'm not Nazarene. I'm Wesley. But the two denominations are very, very close, as I've described, close enough that we're always talking about mergers. And, and pragmatically, why not? Why not merge the resources of these two relatively small denominations of, a, you know, half a million to a million uh, members nationwide? Merge them together. Uh, stop wasting your resources if you actually believe, teach, preach and practice the same thing. But there are differences, as I've identified. Um, so. I had a friend that was attending that 2017 uh, uh, general conference of the Nazarene church in Indianapolis. And he took a picture of that LGBTQ love wins booth and sent it to me. And I thought, okay. Oh my land. So I posted it on Facebook and I said, of again, I repeated some of the things I'm saying to you on the show right now. I said of all the denominations that should understand that this is not right. This is unholy. This is unbiblical. This is not Christian that you don't define yourself by your sinful inclinations, that you define yourself by your Lord, not your libido. The holiness denominations should understand that. And then I finished my little rant on Facebook by saying, John and Charles are rolling over in their grave. Over 2,000 people chimed in and responded to that, which in my world is a substantial number of people taking, uh, taking notice, paying attention to a Facebook post. Now, the interesting thing is the by far the greatest majority of those 2,000 people were negative. There were Nazarene youth pastors and Nazarene head pastors, and there oh, were wow. Wesleyan youth pastors and Wesleyan head pastors chiming in and saying, you're being uncharitable, you're being unfair, and for a variety of reasons. So it, in, it resulted in a long debate on Facebook, which I think was very healthy for the holiness denominations to engage in. And basically those notes that I shared with you, which are yeah. lengthy, come down to this basic fact. Do we define ourselves as Christians? Do we define ourselves by our desires? Or as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, when you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. Are you transformed in Christ or are you transgendered? Are you a 
gay Christian, a bi Christian, which Andy McGee, the director of the ministry for the Nazarene Church, called LGBTQ love wins. Andy McGee, the ordained pastor for that church, defines himself as a bi Christian, a bisexual Christian. Now, that's not what we're called to do in the epistles or in the gospels or anywhere in the Bible. You are to be born again. You're not supposed to just be too easily satisfied with being born that way. Isn't the message from Christ to Paul, to James, to John, to Jude, to Peter, aren't those, aren't those messages found in scripture consistent in terms of dying to self, being dead in our sins, born again, raised in Christ, a new creation in the Lord? And I would argue that the entire agenda of the side B Christianity ignores the fact that you don't celebrate your inclinations to sin. You confess them because that's our obligation as followers of Christ. We, we have someone uh, in the chat who, uh, Brett says that if one follows what is happening at Indiana Wesleyan University, you'll know that John and Charles Wesley have been spinning in their graves for a very long time now, a graduate 1982 of Indiana Wesleyan University. So, he, uh, so he's saying, I guess, back in the 80s, there were problems uh, that Char John Charles Wesley wouldn't have approved that at that particular institution. Um, now, now you were at the time in 2017, were you uh, still at Oklahoma Wesleyan? Yes, I was the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan from 2002 to 2019. So there's cross pollination, I'm assuming, between the Nazarenes and the Wesleyans as far as, you know, pastors from maybe Oklahoma Wesleyan, our graduates are going to go into a Nazarene church, that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Great deal of, uh, like you said, cross pollination. Yes. Okay. So, um, so, so I can imagine when you uh, made this stir online that that this was seen as a big deal. That you you were a heavy hitter for not just the Wesleyans, but actually people in the Nazarene denomination who were going to your school for education. Uh, what kind of pressure did that put on you, making that public stand? Well, um, maybe you can already figure out from just just this brief interview. I really don't care. I know um, that isn't <laughs> that isn't the way I run my life, nor is it the way I led as a as a university president. I've always had the attitude: you run into the face of the storm, you don't run away from it. Yeah, but just real quick, but most guys that am I, uh, and now I don't know what your experience has been, but in mine, most guys do bend to that pressure. You're rare, and and the people who don't are rare. So, so I think it's helpful to know what kind of pressure comes on someone for taking these stands, just because the expectation I have is. Most guys are going to kind of cave or at least try to, you know, figure out a, a cut a deal. Well, that may be true, but I'll I'll be very clear here. Shame on them if they do. It's there's a time. There's a time within all cultural movements where Christians have to be clear, be bold. It's like they used to say when you went and bought your first flat screen TV, go big or go home. And I believe that that holds true in terms of our Christian testimony. And I'm not saying be a jerk or be abrasive or be condescending or rude, but you have to be clear and you have to be biblical if you're going to wave the banner of Christ. And if you're not going to do that with courage and conviction, then uh, um, my respect wanes. And I, and I think you're going to find that you turn around and find very few people following you because you're not leading in a clear direction. Uh, sidebar, um, when I took over Oklahoma Wesleyan University in 2002, it was near bankruptcy. 
And I made up my mind right then and there, we were going to wave the banner for the truth of Christ and the truth of scripture. We were going to speak boldly and unapologetically about inerrancy, the primacy of Jesus Christ, the priority of scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. Jesus is the son of God. The Bible's the word of God. Truth is given by God. It's not made up by you or me. And wisdom, sanctification, holiness, obedience is demanded by God. It's not optional. I talked about those things incessantly. And the irony was I had an Indiana Wesleyan theology professor who accused me of being a closet Baptist because I was talking about those things too much. And my wow. response was, if that makes me a closet Baptist, then our denomination is in a lot of trouble because nothing I said is outside the bounds of biblical orthodoxy. And by the way, our Wesleyan discipline says we believe in the objectivity of truth, that truth is revealed by God, not a postmodern construct of man. And it also says that we believe in inerrancy, all 66 original documents. So how am I a closet X for saying those things? Everything I just said is Wesleyan. Now you can tell the way I chose to deal with that confrontation is to just speak the truth with conviction and clarity. And guess what happened? He went away, okay, he went away. Because how can you argue with what I just said? Mm -hmm. So if you're a biblically driven pastor or layperson right now listening to this particular podcast, grow a spine, have some courage, wave the banner. If you win waving the banner of Jesus Christ, if you win waving the banner of the truth of Scripture and truth of Christ, great, God's grace. If you lose waving that banner, who cares? Go down fighting, be willing to do so. That is true leadership. And guess what? God doesn't have to bless that. I'm not a name it, claim it guy. I don't believe in that the theological angle, but he can choose to bless it if he wants to. Oklahoma Wesleyan went from bankruptcy to financial solvency. We were ranked by Bain uh, as one of the top 20th, uh, 20, we were in the top 20% uh, uh, in the nation in terms of financial viability for uh, uh, academic institutions in the nation. Mm. Why? because we stood for something. We were willing to say, we are Christian, and this is how you define Christianity. You find it in the Bible. It's not complicated. That's who we are. And if you wanna come and get an education within those parameters, come here, because you're not gonna find it at many, many other places. Anyway, that's a pitch that you didn't ask for, but it is a commentary on leadership, I think. Well, is does that hold true, even now that you're not the pr president? Uh, are there, um, is that the school you'd recommend for aspiring pastors in these denominations? Um, my successor is, is not buying into the woke agenda. He's not as aggressive as I am. The pendulum swings, I get that. I think it's an institution you should look at, but I also think you should be an informed consumer and recognize that the Wesleyan Church, the Nazarene Church, the Free Methodist Church is having a conversation about social justice, a conversation about side B Christianity. They're having a conversation about uh, critical race theory, etc. I think anytime you find a sponsoring denomination that's having conversations about those things rather than confronting them, you need to you need to do a lot of homework before you write a check and yeah. decide to go there. And I would say that about a Baptist school, a non-denominational school, a Nazarene school, a free Methodist school, et cetera. I well, think all of the schools are tempted to get yes. into what's popular rather than being what's right. What you just described, I think, would have been uh, also true in 2017 as far as having that side B discussion. Now, though, it seems like the Nazarenes, they're having a discussion about whether gay marriage is acceptable. Right. Yeah. So so they're farther down the path and it's only been a few years. 
And so we can see where this train goes. Once you start opening that door, who's to say that you can't uh, take it all the way? And, and who's to say in another five years, we, we, they won't have transgender, maybe they already do, debates going on. Um, so, so if this starts, as, as you kind of suggested, at least at the beginning, in the educational institutions, I don't know how the accountability works uh, for a place like Oklahoma Wesleyan, let's say. What can laymen, like, because I'm sure that's probably going to be the primary audience here, uh, are going to be laymen in the Wesleyan church, in the Nazarene church, who want to do something. They don't want their denominations going to pot. But what can they do? I need, uh, well, first of all, you need to be informed, uh, staying engaged with podcasts such as yours, reading, uh, make sure you understand what's really going on. Um, be aware that Christian colleges and evangelical churches are being challenged right now. Um, here, here's another story that I think is pertinent to your question. So, um, right after Obergefell was made the law of the land, the, literally the day after, I was, the, at the, I was the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan at the time. I received a letter from the president of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, the CCCU. Now, if people don't know, almost every evangelical Christian college in the nation is a member of the CCCU, whether it's Baptist or whether it's Nazarene, whether it's Free Methodist, whether it's Westland, whether it's non-denominational like Taylor or Biola or uh, John Brown University or uh, Wheaton College. All of these universities... Christian schools are members of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, about 150 institutions strong. In theory, you could go to any of those schools and go to a biblically grounded evangelical Christian university. Okay, I get a letter from the president out of Washington, D.C. of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. Her name's Shirley Hoekstra, the day after Obergefell. And the letter says, I'm letting you know that two of our member institutions East, um, Goshen College and Eastern Mennonite University have decided that because of a Obergefell, they're going to immediately start hiring married homosexual faculty and staff. We, says Mennonite. Shirley, hmm. yeah, we, <laughs> says Shirley Hoekstra, the president of the CCCU, need to have a conversation about this and what we're going to do as an organization. I called Dr. Hoekstra on the phone. I remember it as clear as this conversation. I had my phone to my ear and I'm pacing around my pool in my backyard during the summer. And I said, Dr. Hoekstra, where in the Bible does it tell us to have a conversation about sin? Last I knew when I read my Bible, it said, confess our sins, not have a conversation about them. I said, until you reverse course on this, we're out. We are going to withdraw our membership from the CCCU. They have not reversed course. They are having that ongoing conversation. And I would argue that anytime you start talking about something as if it's an open issue, an open issue for debate, you sooner or later are going to embrace that issue as acceptable within the body of Christ, acceptable, acceptable within the church. And where are we? Obergefeld was, what was it, 2015, 16? 15, yeah. 15. So here we are. From 2015 and to today, and we have these evangelical holiness churches and Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and non-denominational uh, non colleges and churches having conversations about side B Christianity and whether or not they should ordain gay pastors, they should uh, or, uh, officiate uh, homosexual weddings, 
and whether or not you're going to embrace transgenderism within the church. That, that's an excellent point, because uh, I think that is the temptation. I know I even have had that where the it, it seems so innocuous. Let's have a conversation. How could that be threatening? How could that? Right? And, and, and in, the, the assumption is that both sides are committed to truth and we're going to figure it out somehow and truth is going to prevail. And that's just not the case. At least the pattern we've seen is when you start using the conversation language, there's some people involved in that conversation who have their minds made up. They, they are using it as a tool to then get to the next level, which is uh, let's have a conversation about, I guess, whether you should be allowed to continue in your job since you oppose same-sex mm -hmm. marriage. I mean, it becomes more aggressive. And um, we, we have several people that are chiming in. I'm just a little, uh, we have um, Micah here saying that his experience at Indiana Wesleyan University from 2016 to 2020 was was pretty bad, I guess. Uh, there was CRT stuff and, and LGBT stuff. Uh, Barb Johnson says the Nazarene church we left had a board member who was not sure if abortion was wrong. The youth pastor was then full supporter of BLM. I mean, does any of this surprise you? I'm assuming it doesn't. No, no, because it's been going on for, for decades. It, this isn't just the last 10 years. Uh, let me, I hope it's not boring. Let me give you another story. Yeah, please. Um, all right. I was doing my doctoral work at Michigan State University when I worked at a free Methodist school, my alma mater, Spring Arbor University in Spring Arbor, Michigan, an evangelical school. It changed my life. I'm, I'm very proud of, of much of what Spring Arbor stands for. But I recognized at the time that there was, there were conversations going on within the free Methodist church and evangelical Christianity that seemed to me to be outside the boundaries of the very definition of evangelical Christianity. So the topic of my dissertation at Michigan State was evangelical Christianity. What does it mean in the minds of the constituent holders, the customers, if you will, of an evangelical Christian college? Now, don't let your eyes get crossed over. I'm not going to bore you with all my research and analysis, but I'm going to share with you the opening page of my dissertation. And bear with me, I'm going to quote something that's going to be very offensive. So grant me some latitude here. It's a quote. It's not language I would use. All right. A student walks into my office a couple days after new student orientation started there at Spring Arbor College. I was the dean of students. I was the VP for student affairs at the time. He walked into my office, brand new student. And he was angry. He looked me in the eye and he said, you told me a couple days ago during new student orientation that this was an evangelical Christian school. I'm angry. And I said, indeed, I did. What's the problem? He said, well, today I went to my first class, my English class, and the professor asked a question and I didn't know the answer to the question. So she confronted me in, in front of the entire class and she said, and here's my quote, Jesus Christ, don't you understand the answer to the question? I looked at that student and I said, are you serious? He said, yes, that's a direct quote. Hmm. I called up the provost at the time at, that, at my alma mater, Spring Arbor University. I said, we got a problem. An English professor just confronted a student and said this to the student in response to his ignorance of a question. The provost said, well, Everett, you need to understand that some people of that given denomination, this particular professor wasn't free Methodist, she was of a different denomination, don't consider that to be cursing. What in the world? <laughs> uh, so the opening page in my dissertation is basically asking this question, have we come to the point and time 
and place in evangelical Christianity where we don't even understand that using the Lord's name in vain is wrong and that some denominations don't consider that to be cursing. And even if that's true, some denominations don't think that's cursing. Why are you hiring those people at an evangelical institution that should think that's cursing? Okay. You would, th you would think the, the, the weaker brother, you'd at least, even, even if they thought that they would, you know, help acquiesce to the weaker brother or something but that's so my whole dissertation was on what is the definition of evangelical that's crazy um do we have a definition when it comes to sexual morality do we have a definition when it comes to biblical understanding the definition of scripture do we have an understanding when it comes to whether you use the lord's name in vain or you don't do we right. have basic common sense bottom line understandings that define the evangelical christian and my dissertation argues back in 1999 that we were already losing that definition to the extent where an evangelical Christian school could defend a professor who was using Jesus's name in vain. I, I'm glad that you're bringing some of this out because I've noticed a trend with some young Zoomer, I, I suppose, Christians who are pretty motivated. Uh, this the, the next generation seems to be... they at least the conservatives and the Christians, they don't accept the nonsense quite as much, probably because they've grown up with broken homes and lesbian parents and, you know, all, all the things that they've grown up with. They see some of the problems. So they want to go back to the drawing board. And that's what you're bringing out is you can't go to 2015 and say, let's figure out where we went wrong. You have to go back before that and say, okay, it wasn't even about LGBT stuff. It, there were other things that paved the way for that. What were those things? And, and of course, uh, you know, treating the Lord in such a cavalier, casual fashion, I, I would think would be one. Why would we listen to Jesus' commands if he's just a, a, a word we exclaim when we are disgusted or surprised about something? Right. So um, so I, I'm glad that you're bringing that out. Um, I, I do have a question. So just to relate to you for a moment, I know we have different stories, uh, but um, and, and my roots are not as deep in the Southern Baptist Convention, but. I had a heritage going back to the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention. And my my dad was the one who kind of left Southern Baptist churches. He broke that tradition in the 80s when they were fighting over um, inerrancy and evolution and all these things. He just said, you know, he, he just left. He went to a different church and then non-denominational from that point forward. I I knew about this. And I also thought there were some good positive things. I thought, For example, I was really a fan of Al Mohler for a while. I thought, the briefing was great. I thought Al Mohler is going to really bring the Southern Baptist Convention into a more conservative and uh, orthodox kind of tone. And so I went to a Southern Baptist school with the intention of getting involved in the Southern Baptist Convention. And of course, while I'm there, social justice, right? And, and it's rampant. It is it is systemic. So um, I, I've, of course, I'm not at a Southern Baptist church now, but I, I did feel, and, and I think I feel this more broadly than just the Southern Baptist, like, 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 uh, who was it? Was it, uh, I forget who the politician who said like the democratic party didn't leave. Uh, I didn't leave the democratic party. It left me. I forget who said that. Uh, Reagan might've Gene was it Reagan. I think it was Ronald Reagan. So, so yeah. I feel that way a little bit about like the Southern Baptists about the broader evangelical movement. I, I feel like I, I didn't change. Like I didn't, but what, where's my tribe? Where are my people? And of course they're sitting there in pews across the country, but at the institutional level, there's very little I can relate to. And I imagine you feel that way, maybe even more so. I mean, what what do you, uh, how do you relate to the Wesleyan denomination? 
what ex- expectations do you have for the future of the Wesleyan denomination? I mean, are are you putting any stock in that, or or, or do you think it's a lost cause? You know, and, and you're finding somewhere else to congregate and and, and sh- find people that share something in common with you. Well, I think like any denomination, um, you're going to have some people that are biblical and conservative. They're still within the denomination. They're fighting the good fight to try to reclaim the high ground and redeem that particular church movement. And that's certainly true for Nazarenes, and it's certainly true for Wesleyans and Free Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian. Um, I mean, isn't the isn't that the history of the church? You have people that choose to leave, and you have people that choose to stay and fight. And I think both um, decisions can be defended. If you choose to leave because you want sound biblical teaching and your given church, your local church isn't providing that, then bless you. That's probably the right thing to do. But if you choose to stay within that church and fight, um, that's a noble cause too. So I think both decisions, I think we need to honor that within the, the biblical tribe, if you will, of Christianity. I've got many friends that have chosen to stay within the Methodist church, for example, and fight the good fight. They're, as, they're grounded. They're biblical. They, they, they know what they believe and they know why. They defend the word of God. Um, and they do so within a denomination that has some conservatives and they have many that aren't. Um, so I think we just need to pat our brother and sister on the back if they choose to stay engaged and fight. But if you choose, I think if you choose to stay in a church that's getting mushy, even if it's not completely apostate at this time, if they're mushy on CRT, if they're mushy mushy on social justice, if they want to continue to have a conversation about side B Christianity, if you stay and you're not willing to raise your hand and speak boldly about biblical truth, then I think you're compromising yourself. And I think you need to recognize time to get out and go someplace where you can get some good, solid biblical teaching so that you don't lose your own way and your children don't lose theirs. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, that's a practical thing for people who are in churches. What do you, What about the future of the denomination itself? Do you expect good things? Do you? I mean, no one knows the future, but uh, w- what do you think is going to happen? Like, are, are, is side B going to become more prevalent and then from there more sexual uh, perversions or is it going to go back the other way? Well, you co- in your story that you covered a couple of weeks ago with Thomas Ord, and um, I can't remember the pastor's name, the Nazarene pastor out yeah, in either. California that just got released. The good news right. is the district superintendent and the general superintendent of the Nazarene church decided to terminate that pastor. That's the good news. Okay. Now, the challenging news is a lot of the leadership of the Nazarene church and the Wesleyan church and the Free Methodist church is leaning left, leaning progressive. So from the top down, you have compromises. For example, when I challenged, when I challenged the uh, Love Wins LGBTQ rainbow booth at the Nazarene Convention, the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church wrote a letter essentially condemning me for the way I had challenged them and supporting the Nazarene Church and its leadership. Ooh. So now is that... What I'm saying is that from the top down, the reason that you're having these very confusing, extra-biblical, if not non-biblical conversations within a lot of evangelicalism is there's weakness at the top. Because the top should be dictating, should be leading, should be clarifying, and should be defending the definition of those denominations and those churches. But if the top 
isn't doing that, then you have difficulty. And that difficulty isn't going to bear good fruit. Are there still lots of good conservative people in those denominations that want to see a return to biblical faithfulness? Absolutely. Absolutely. But the if the if if the head is rotten, the rest of the body is going to be compromised too. So I think the future basically comes down to who are you going to elect? Who are you going to appoint? Who are you going to charge with leadership of these denominations? Look at the SBC. You, you see it there. I mean, that's the perfect example, right? You've covered it. Oh, yeah. If, if your leadership in the SBC is compromised, then the entire movement is confused and flounders. And the SBC has changed dramatically in, in, the, in just the last five to 10 years because of compromised leadership. Am that's I right? right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and the SBC's polity is supposedly, at least, it's interesting because it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, the political situation in the United States. And we, we uh, hear a lot about uh, how it's so great we have democracy and individual freedom. And then you look at the reality on the ground and you wonder if you can even trust election results, right? So the SBC also has this kind of like, they're very proud about the fact that they're supposed to be from the bottom up. They they meet annually and they're everything's done through this massive a body of thousands of people who are there but the stage really this is what they don't say and what they don't recognize the stage really does control what happens it, it is very easy to persuade people uh if you control the microphones and you control the visuals and and who gets to be platformed and say what you, you can pretty much get the outcome you want most of the time that's what it seems like at least um, is, is that the same way? I mean, I don't know how the Wesleyan Church runs their business. Is it similar to the SBC in that way, where there's a possibility of laymen showing up who are understanding the issues and, and voting the bums out? Or is this more hierarchical? Well, the, the Wesleyan Church and the Nazarene Church would be more hierarchical than the SBC in a sense, because we do have a hierarchical structure. Uh, by definition, and we don't apologize for it. So the autonomy that the Southern Baptist churches have within the SBC convention is, is something that the Wesleyan churches and the Nazarene churches don't enjoy in terms of that type of autonomy. Um, you have a general superintendent, then you have district superintendents under the general, and those district superintendents are responsible for leading and managing their respective districts across the nation, across the world with, with, with regard to that denomination. So there's accountability of the pastor to the district superintendent. There's accountability of the district superintendent to the general superintendent. Now, in their, in their quadrennial conventions, the conventions that they have every four years, they have delegates. The delegates are predominantly lay individuals that have been appointed by their districts to go to that convention. And those delegates can vote and are responsible for voting on the future and the, history, the future trajectory of the church. So yes, the delegates do have authority uh, as the final vote on where the church goes. But as all organizations go, if you're not informed, if you're not educated, if you don't listen to what's going on, if you don't read voraciously before you get to that convention, you're going to be led around by your nose by political motivations. I, that's true in any denomination or any organization, I would argue. If you're a delegate and you have voting authority, you have to go in informed and be prepared to be unpopular if necessary, especially in our day and in our time when so many movements are unbiblical. 
Yeah, good word, good word. I would just uh, let everyone know who's in the chat box here. Um, if you have any questions for Dr. Everett Piper, get them in now because we're probably going to be landing the plane here soon. So any uh, questions or comments about anything that Dr. Piper has said, um, let me know and I will be sure to feature them. Um, Dr. Piper, uh, moving forward, I know I, I'm assuming you're you're retired from being the president of colleges and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, do you see yourself in a role other than uh, doing the writing that you're doing now, maybe in the denominational life of the Wesleyan Church or no? No, no, I no, I, I'm not an ordained pastor, number one. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm one of those dastardly administrators. Uh, I, so. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I don't see myself doing that. Uh, we actually attend uh, a Baptist church right now. When we retired, I've always felt that the best thing for an ex-president to do when he leaves an institution is to die. I mean, the only good ex-president is a dead one. And I would say that about an ex-head pastor too. Get out of town, get out of the way, let your successor do his job. Um, so we changed our social and church dynamic when I retired from Oklahoma Wesleyan so that we gave some elbow room to my successor. So I we see. attend Baptist Church. Um, by the way, I did decide to run for political office. I, um, uh, oh. am, a county, I am a county commissioner now in Osage County, Oklahoma, because I figured, you know, put your money where your mouth is. You keep talking about engagement and leadership, getting involved in the, in the political arena, the public square. Somebody called me and asked me to run for county commissioner to clean up a bit of a mess over here in my county. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Um, I don't want the job, don't need the job, but I was willing to do the job for the sake of trying to make some positive progress. And maybe that's a good analogy for the way we should engage in the church too. get wow. involved. I mean, if you don't want to do it, be willing to do it, because if you don't, it'll probably keep going in a negative direction. There's a few questions coming in. Um, Plain Spoken asks, Dr. Piper, what role do you think Wesleyanism broadly has to play in the near future in America and the post-Christian West? That's the first question. Well, I think the history, I'm proud of the history of the Wesleyan Church, of the Wesleyan movement. I'm proud that John and Charles Wesley challenged the Church of England to stop um, behaving badly. I mean, I'm, I'm narrowing that down to very non-theological terms, but Christians weren't acting like Christ. They weren't behaving. They, they claimed to believe. They said they had these beliefs in their head, but they hadn't transferred those beliefs into the behaviors of the heart and the hands. So I think that the holiness movement, whether it's Nazarene, whether it's Wesleyan, whether it's Free Methodist, uh, Assembly of God, the holiness movement has a lot to bring to the table in terms of holiness unto the Lord and the and that message for the broader body of Christ. Good, good. Um, and we have Brett. He asks, I, uh, he's, I guess, idea for a question. I guess this is his question, though. Indiana Wesleyan University recently got a new president. What are Dr. Piper's impressions? Oh, gosh, if any, does he have of the new president? Well, that's dangerous territory. Do you? It is. You... I'm not going there. Uh, OK, yeah, actually, actually, I'll say something. I know the new president and he's a good man. Um, and I think he's trying to do some good things. Um, so I'll be positive about that. I, I, it's, hey, turning an academic institution around is like turning a sinking ship around. It is very difficult to do. In fact, Peter Drucker, the old guru of leadership that lived into his 90s, if you studied any leadership theory uh, over the last 30, 20, 30 years at the university level, you read Drucker. Drucker, in his later years, he was giving a presentation at an Ivy League institution, let's just call it Harvard, 
And at the end of his presentation, there was a Q&A. And one kid, one bright Harvard student raised his hand and said, Dr. Drucker, you're the guy. You've counseled kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents and Fortune 500 CEOs about leadership. Have you ever stumbled across an organization that's impossible to lead? And Drucker, without missing a beat, said, yes, the college and the church. They're both, both impossible to lead because by definition, they're dysfunctional. Nobody knows who the boss is. Wow. <laughs> I did not know about that quote. That's, uh, I don't know if that's encouraging or discouraging. <laughs> I don't know where to go with that one. Uh, so Plain Spoken says, uh, again, just, oh, wait, wait, that wasn't what I wanted to go to. Sorry. Barb Johnson says, no question. Just want to say I love Dr. Piper's podcast and re-listen to many of the episodes. So you have a podcast too. You didn't tell me that. Uh, it's called The Rebellion. Um, uh, yeah, I've got uh, I've got 700, 800 episodes out there, but I took a break during the summer, so I've been on a hiatus for the last two or three months. I need to ramp it up again. Okay. Um, Micah Sample says, what would it take to pull the descendants of the Wesleyan movement back towards biblical orthodoxy? How can the tide be turned at individual churches and academic institutions long term? I think you might have already kind of answered that, but do you have anything to add? You've got to hire biblical uh, faculty and you've got to the delegates of Micah's question is within the organizational and governance structure of the Nazarene and Wesleyan churches, which I've already described. So the delegates that you appoint to go to the general convention, general conference have to be biblically grounded and understand the importance of their vote. Until you do that, you're going to get weak leadership that's woke. Very good. Okay. Well, I think those are all our questions for now. Um, well, Dr. Piper, thank you once again. And if people want to find out more about Dr. Everett Piper, you can just go to dreverettpiper.com, dreverettpiper.com, and find out more about uh, his books and his writings. And uh, I guess uh, your podcast, I'm assuming, is there as well. So yeah. go check that out. God bless. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. <laughs> 